fill to capacity. Quirky conversations that explore the inside out of being human and navigates the emotional terrain of a fast-changing world. Inspiring, irreverent, and informative. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Pat Benincasa, and welcome to Fill to Capacity. Today's episode, The Soaring Heights of Raptor Rehab and Release. My guest, Lori Arndt, is Assistant Director of the Raptor Center at University of Minnesota and author of Raptors in Captivity, Guidelines for Care and Management. Lori, I have been looking so forward to having you on today. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I'd like to give our listeners a brief background. The Raptor Center started in 1974 as part of University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine. Now, if we fast forward today, the center takes care of about 1,000 birds per year. The center trains future generations of veterinarians, wildlife rehabbers, and volunteers. And it has a program called Partners for Wildlife that work with wildlife rehabilitators, veterinarians, to improve the welfare of orphaned, ill, and injured wildlife. So, Lori, did I miss a lot here in the description? (laughs) No, I think that pretty much summarizes it. There's a lot of different components to what you said, what we actually do. Well, then, would you tell us, what do you do at the Raptor Center? Oh, I'd love to. So, right now, I'm the assistant director. And that means basically I help a lot with basic operations. You know, I just make sure that the building is being maintained, you know, that we have enough staff. So I do hiring, things like that. I also help each of the individual departments to meet their goals. And I also help to create some of those strategic initiatives going forward in the future. And as you pointed out, it's super exciting because the Raptor Center was established in 1974, which means 2024, we're going to have our 50th anniversary. So right now we're trying to think, you know, okay, we know what the last 50 looked like. What should the next 50? Yeah. I've been on your Facebook page, the Raptor Facebook page, which I love. And this past October, the Raptor Center released its 30,000th patient, a red-tailed hawk, into the wild. And you said, Lori, quote, I knew we were getting close. I can't even explain it. It was just super exciting to know that we've had an impact in the lives of 30,000 birds. Will you tell us more about that? Yes. I mean, I've been with the Raptor Center for over 30 years myself. And my first role for 25 of those years was managing the rehabilitation clinic. So my heart, although I work for the entire organization, my heart still lies in the clinic work that we do. So that was extremely special and exciting to me when I knew that we were getting close to that milestone. You know, every single bird that comes into our clinic has a story to tell. And raptors really are such amazing sentinels for what's happening in our environment that a lot of times, you know, they'll tell us, oh, you know, there's too much lead in the environment. Well, actually, any lead is bad in the environment, but, you know, or there's a new disease, right, that is, is showing up. And so... 
if we just listen to what they're telling us, we can actually help people too. It's kind of called the One Health concept, where environmental health, human health, and animal health are all linked together. And so I was super excited with that number of of 30,000. And it was even more exciting that Dr. Reddick, who is one of the co-founders of the program, was able to release it. Oh, that is very nice. Poetic justice, right? (laughs) Oh, definitely. It was so funny because it was a very sunny day. And I knew I was going to get emotional. And and he knew he was going to get emotional. We both had our sunglasses on. But then the media was there. And when they interviewed us, they wanted us to take our sunglasses off. And it's like, oh, do we have to? Oh, no. Busted. We both had tears in our eyes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Now, you mentioned earlier there's a lot of different components that we'll talk about later in the uh, interview. But there was one a term that, that kept showing up, and that is interpretive naturalist. Mm-hmm. What is an interpretive naturalist? What do they do? So an interpretive naturalist is a type of educator. And what they do at the Raptor Center is they take those stories I mentioned of the birds that come into our clinic and kind of share that information with the public so so that the public realizes what types of challenges that the birds are facing in the environment, and they are potentially facing too. So the role of those naturalists is really to interpret the bird stories and kind of bring them up to a, a level that anybody could understand. Well, that's wonderful. You know, that kind of segues into my next question. In July, you had the first confirmed case of highly pathogenic avian influenza, sometimes called HPAI, or called avian flu. Now, what is that? And for those of us who are backyard bird feeders, is there anything we can do to help stop the spread of this? Well, that actually, the first case we saw was back in March, at the end of March. Oh, okay. And so the current strain of avian influenza is one that came from Europe. And as people may recall, there was also an avian influenza outbreak in 2015. And that one targeted a lot of poultry, right? The wildlife weren't as affected as the poultry. This time, the strain was different in that it was extremely deadly to other birds, especially to raptors. And so, you know, we, we knew it was coming. We didn't have any idea what impact it was going to have or the extent that we would see it at the Raptor Center. And so we were starting to get ramped up. You know, it kind of, it kind of came down the East Coast, was settling in Florida a little bit. And so we knew how it was impacting the rehabilitators in Florida. So then okay. we like, oh my gosh, you know, those birds, those waterfowl are going to migrate back up here, you know, usually mid-March. Yeah. Right. I have a pond in my backyard and usually by, you know, the 15th of March, there are geese back on it. So we kind of knew, you know, when when it was going to potentially arrive. So we really jumped into gear quickly um, and we established kind of a makeshift quarantine. And unfortunately, our greatest fears um, kind of came to be in that, um, you know, we saw many, many cases of HPAI and it is extremely contagious and it's extremely fatal in raptors. And it was just heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And as far as what people can do, you know, we we suggested that, you know, if people have poultry in their backyards, right, that they don't let them run loose, that they protect them by maybe putting uh, some type of tarp over, like if they have a chicken house, just because the way that they would get it is from 
the bird droppings, right? Geese fly over, ducks fly over. And if they go to the bathroom and that drops in the chicken enclosure, and then of course the chickens eat everything, right? That's one way that they could get it. So to protect, you know, the spread and also to protect their own flocks, you know, that was something that we suggested they do. Now, I live in a St. Paul neighborhood, and I have to say, we have neighbors who have chickens. Yes. And, and I mean, it's very prevalent, and it's not unusual at sunrise to hear the cock-a-doodle-doo of a rooster. Oh. So it's a reality that people are very engaged yes, uh, with, with poultry, wildlife. And I don't know if that's a condition of COVID being locked in at home for a couple of years that people began to notice the birds, the squirrels, their backyards. So I don't know if that generated more interest in it. It seems to have. Maybe. I mean, people were starting even before that to really get into the idea of having some backyard chickens. Yeah. Um, But then I suspect certainly COVID, you know, just only made that heightened, that interest heightened. And of course, yeah, yeah, people were you know, they're stuck inside. They want to go out to the natural parks, you know, and yes. so yeah, in doing so, I think they just became more aware of wildlife. So, Lori, you mentioned that you have been with the Raptor Center for 30 years. And so I'm dying to ask this. Is there an experience or a particular bird of prey that really touched your heart? I would have to say yes, and it is, it's kind of an unusual species that we normally don't have here in Minnesota, and it was a prairie falcon. So it's a bird that probably wandered, you know, in a storm, got blown a little eastward, and it, uh, you know, probably originated in South Dakota. But this bird, unfortunately, was shot, and of course, it's not legal to do that. Birds are, raptors are migratory birds, so they're protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. But this bird was somewhat lucky in that it had a pretty simple fracture of one of its wings. And this is when I first started, right? You know, I mean, there was so much I didn't know. And this bird taught me a lot. So, you know, the, the incredible veterinary staff was able to heal the fracture. And then it was my job to take it and recondition it. So get it back into shape so that it can, you know, do the things it needs to do to survive. And this bird just would not fly. Really? Yeah, we, we exercise our birds on a creance, which is essentially a long tether, you know, 200 foot tether. And so went out, put the bird on the tether, and I could not get it to fly. I think its spirit was broken, hmm. you know, and, and we've seen that in some other birds as well. So I enlisted the help of a local falconer and falconry is a sport where people, they get training, they get a permit, and then they can have a raptor with which they hunt. Okay. And so there was, you know, a handful of local falconers and I enlisted the help of a falconer to really help me evaluate this bird. And we actually ended up using falconry techniques and we were, we flew this bird free. So no tether and got that, that instinct, the instinct was there, but just got the drive back. You know, the bird wanted to yeah. fly, wanted to hunt. And then, you know, we got it into shape and we actually took it to South Dakota and released it in the Badlands. Whoa, so, what a story. That's a And it gets story. better because that, that was the beginning of the rest of my life because I ended up marrying that falconer. No kidding. That's okay. That story <laughs> wins. Head and shoulders. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. So the bird had a, had a different kind of mission here. <laughs> oh, yes. Little did I know how, how much that bird would change my life. But I mean, it, it taught me so much. And then it helped me to help other birds, right? So, yes. Yeah. Yes. 
It, I get the impression from everything I've read about the Raptor Center that you folks are really good about reaching out when you need help. And like the story that you just told. And I saw that you have rescue and transport volunteers. Mm-hmm. What do those folks do? Well, just like it sounds, they go and they rescue birds that are, you know, in the wild and in trouble. They then help to bring them to our facility in a timely manner. You know, one thing we always say at the Raptor Center is that time is trauma. And so what that basically means is when an animal is traumatized, the quicker you can get it to somewhere for adequate care, the better the outcome will be for that bird. Okay. So we have about 160 transport volunteers throughout the state of Minnesota. And basically, you know, we will get a call in that there's, you know, someone sees a bird or has a bird contained, but maybe they can't bring it in or maybe they don't, they're scared of it, right? They don't even want to go to try to touch it, which I can't blame them. You know, these birds have sharp beaks and talons. So then we will send out one of our rescue transport volunteers to do that for them and to bring the bird in in a timely fashion. So So I noticed on the uh, Facebook page, you were talking to people about encouraging respectful and safe bird watching ethics. And I was struck by that, the way you frame it. There's there's an ethic involved in how we respond to uh, wildlife. And you had things like if a bird is altering its behavior in your presence, then you're too close. Mm-hmm. And another one was if you come across a unique raptor, do not share the bird's location on social media, which exactly. today, by today's standard, people document what they have for breakfast, when they I take know. a walk. I mean, when they go to the doctor's office. So this is a biggie. And then it is. when a raptor is discovered, it can quickly become overwhelmed with onlookers. And so please be respectful of our raptor neighbors so that they can thrive. And, you know, just have a place in the environment. So the fact that you post this, what is your thought about that? I mean, people get excited when they they hear about, oh, my gosh, a raptor. There's one over here. What is your thought about all of this? Well, I certainly feel that it is wonderful for people to experience wildlife in their native areas, right? So we don't want to discourage people from watching, but watch from a distance. You know, sometimes these birds will be perched in a tree. You don't need to be 10 feet in front of the tree to see it. You know, use your binoculars, right? Just try not to change the bird's behavior by your presence. And so in the case of raptors, most species have kind of a personal, I don't know, a personal bubble, right? A space just like people do, you know, that personal you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, um, I do. And and they'll tolerate it up to a point, and then they will start to get nervous, right? And then they'll either move or they may, you know, stop feeding their chicks if that's what they're doing, because their safety and security is going to be first. So we okay. certainly want to encourage people to enjoy, but just do it respectfully. Stay, you know, a good distance away, use binoculars, use scopes, even if you're going to f- do photography, have a nice zoom, you know, you don't need to yep. be super close. Just, you know, be respectful, I think is the bottom line. So of all the raptors that you've worked with, can you say that certain raptors have personalities? Oh, that each individual has a personality. Oh boy, tell us about it. <laughs> well, you know, just like people, right? Every bird's a little bit different. There are certainly some species-specific traits 
that a bird will have. But then on top of that, they're all a little bit different. You know, some some have different level of tolerances. Some may be a little bit more curious. Some will be a little bit more what we call aggressive, defensive. And a lot of it is really based on their experiences, right? What has happened in their life before, before they've come to us? Okay. And so, of course, everyone has had different experiences in their lives, just like people. Yeah, that's true. Have you noticed, you mentioned about this eco connection between bird, human, and environment. In your time at the Raptor Center, have you seen a change in the eco design or what's happening in Minnesota with the land? Have you noticed any difference? Well, I think, you know, for sure, I mean, land is being more developed, right? You yeah. know, or, or, or changed, you know, we used to have a higher population of short-eared owls, for example, and burrowing owls in the western part of the state. But then a lot of the land that used to be prairie is now being used for agriculture. And so those species have just had to move out because the agricultural habitat doesn't really support them. Okay. So, I mean, there have been those types of changes for sure. And also, we have a state that the Mississippi runs through it. And it's almost like a character, a person in the state. I mean, the Mississippi is so much a part of Minnesota. What aspect, what role does that river play in terms of the life of raptors? Oh, it's huge because they use that river as a flyway. So when they migrate north and south, they kind of follow the river. That's kind of their, their guidance, right? And so that is one of the reasons why we have Hawk Ridge up in Duluth, which is a major area where birds kind of congregate as they're migrating south. And that ridge has a lot of good air currents, right? So the birds okay. can get thermals and then they kind of find the river and they, they just fly down the river to go south. But that also is a way that all the waterfowl come back up. And that's one of the reasons why Minnesota and other states on that flyway got hit so hard with avian influenza because those oh. migrating waterfowl just followed that river right through our state. Oh, so, yeah. So, you know, it so has just, pluses and minuses, right? You, absolutely. Yeah. Does, does the avian flu run its course? Is that how it just like stops being effective? Like what stops it or slows it down? How does that work? Or do you say, oh, it's avian flu. It's going to last X number of months. I mean, is there a way you can gauge a time frame for this? It's, you know, it's really difficult. Um, and so, I mean, even now we're seeing occasional flu victims again. So it was really intense from the end of March through, oh, I'd say through June, pretty much, middle mm-hmm. of July. And then we had a break where we didn't see anything from July until the end of August. Then we knew as birds are going to come migrating south, we were probably going to see it again. Okay. And so, you know, it's, it's in so many different species of birds and the timeline of when they get it and how they incubate it and when they pass it, it's just enough that it's going to keep, keep it in the environment for a while, unfortunately. Okay. But okay. now we're hoping, you know, that all the birds that it migrate moved out or okay. hopefully with the snow today, they will. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully, you know, we're just going to get a period of time where there won't be any flu until the next group of birds migrates back north again. That's what we're hoping. So do you plan for it every year? Well, we will now. Okay. Yes. And yep. is that a changed pattern? The fact that you have to plan for it every year? Oh, definitely. It has been a huge change in our treatment protocols, how the clinic functions. 
Okay. I don't know that it, you know, I don't know when it will ever be as it was before, just because if it's not this infectious disease, it's going to be another one. So we've really spent a lot of time and resources to set up a good quarantine type situation because some other rehab facilities across the country just stopped doing rehab, period, because they couldn't meet all the biosecurity needs that are needed for this disease. It's so infectious. Now, okay, you're talking about a quarantine. And since all of us have lived through lockdowns and quarantines, I think we're all a little bit expert in this. And so it's one thing to quarantine humans, but how on earth do you set up a quarantine for for birds that fly every, I mean, how do you do that? Well, you know, when the first, when the patients first come in, um, we have to have them in a separate building, right? We keep them in, you know, kind of like dog kennels, right? When they first come in. And so we had to set up a separate building right behind our building. And I just want to put a shout out here to the university, the College of Veterinary Medicine, who really allowed us to just take over this building, you know, in a pinch. It was very yeah. much an emergency response. We, we took the building over. And I mean, the building is an old barn, essentially. And so we needed to, you know, to do some quick fixes to separate rooms with tarps okay. and other things. So it's, it's pretty archaic, but it worked. It worked. Um, okay. Yeah. And then, you know, basically we have the birds come in. There's a lot of personal protective equipment we need to use. So our clinicians are essentially in hazmat suits. And then, so, you know, they have to put them on, take them off. They have to be very careful, the order in which they touch things. And this virus, the reason it's so contagious is because one of the ways that it can spread is through what's called fomites, which are basically viral particles, which stick to your shoes, your clothes, your hands. I mean, and that's how it can be carried from one spot to the next. So I mean, we worked with the Minnesota Department of Health to really fine tune our biosecurity protocols. And so, yeah, we were able to to continue successfully so that we could continue to accept raptors and help those at least that were not affected by the virus. Fill to Capacity is brought to you by one of the most celebrated persons in history, Joan of Arc. How about carrying a bit of Joan's courage with you all the time? You can with the Joan of Arc Scroll Medal designed by award-winning artist Pat Benincasa. With loving attention to detail, Joan has banner in hand and is charging off the scroll-shaped medal with the words, Be at my side. This beautiful brass alloy metal is ideal for holiday or special occasion gifts. Don't wait. Capture a bit of history and inspiration today. Visit www.patbenincasa-art.com. Now, back to the podcast. Oh, that's extraordinary. The measures that you uh, undertook to still do the kind of work that you do, that it didn't stop you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we couldn't have done it without all the support that we had, you know, and the university and our public, you know, support community. I mean, it was just, it was really a team effort. I noticed in my neighborhood, uh, I moved here about 30 years ago. And back then, to see a hawk or bird of prey anywhere near the neighborhood was something really 
unusual. And I've noticed in the last three or four years, I'm seeing all sorts of uh, hawks and falcons flying overhead. And I'm just stunned by the numbers. And I'm now spotting nests. And this is for you. I I mean, this is a fairly busy neighborhood. It's not like we're out in the woods here. You know, we're just a mile from the city, uh, downtown St. Paul. So is that a migratory pattern? Are we seeing a shift of these animal, these birds coming in to peopled areas more? Well, I think, you know, if you look at what our environment looked like 30 years ago, I mean, unfortunately, we've, we've taken more of the natural space and developed it. So we've kind of forced these raptors to come into closer proximity to people and try to figure out how to thrive in that type of situation. And some species have done remarkably well at thriving in close okay. proximity to people. And so that's why we do see them in our backyards. You know, some people in Minneapolis have a bald eagle nest in their backyard. You know, really? if they're right across, yeah, if they're right, you know, close to a river or lake. So it's just, it's a totally different world now. But that also really means is. that these... That also means these raptors get into problems more with their close proximity to people, right? They're colliding more with cars and windows, yeah. you know, yeah. that type of stuff too, right? I'd have to say, I, I'm an artist and I built a building in my backyard, my studio. And one day I came out and on the top of my, my I commute 10 feet to, to work to my studio. Oh, love and it. On, <laughs> it is wonderful. I didn't mind snow days at all. And one day I came out and I saw a blue heron perched on my roof. Wow. And I, those are huge. Yes. And I, I mean, I gasped. It was so majestic and so beautiful. And I had to ask, what the hell is that doing on my roof? How did it get here? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, birds can cover a pretty good distance, right? You know, they, they well, fly, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, they fly at a pretty good clip. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, that that bird could have come from a, a lake near you or something like that. And I yeah. thought, wow, this is a great place to just sit down and take a little rest. <laughs> well, it was shocking. I have to tell you. Now I, I saw a story on your Facebook page about a fledgling hawk on the ground in front of somebody's house. And the nearest branch of that little hawk was too far away for it to get back up on the tree. So that laddering was needed. Will you tell us about that? What is laddering? Yeah, so laddering is, is a term that we use here at the Raptor Center to describe the situation where if you can put a youngster on a low branch that has branches subsequent kind of going up the tree, then it will ladder up. Just like if you would go up a ladder yourself, you know, you, you don't start at the fourth step, right? You start right. at the first step. And then every single step, you're going up the ladder. So, you know, if a person can find a situation like that with tree branches where the bird can ladder up itself to get higher, that's what's really best. And that's what some of our volunteers do. They will come out to a site like this and they will assess the surroundings and try to find a good spot to put a youngster like that so that it can get higher on its own. Okay. So it sounds like you have a lot of regular people, like homeowners and people in neighborhoods who seem to respond and call you. Do you get a lot of calls like from neighborhoods? Oh, thousands, thousands. And it's not always just about, you know, I have this injured bird, but they have questions. You know, like I have a bird feeder and I saw a hawk come in and take a bird from my bird feeder. 
you know, do you know what that was? Yeah. Or what can I do to prevent that? <laughs> you know, yeah. people don't like that when, when raptors, right, take birds at their bird feeder. And so just a lot of public inquiry about raptors in general. Okay. In terms of the, the training that the Raptor Center does with veterinarians, what is it you do in training veterinarians and, you know, as their students and learning their, their practice, what is it that you guys do with them that, that is special? Well, I think part of the reason why we're so successful at that is because of our caseload. You know, we have a fairly high number of of patients in our clinic at any one time, and we provide hands-on opportunities. So these students are working side-by-side with one of our veterinarians or veterinary technicians, really learning all the fine points of caring for these birds. You know, they're observing, and sometimes they'll assist with surgeries. You know, they will learn how to take blood samples and do some of the diagnostics, take radiographs, that type of thing. And they will even just as basic as doing a a complete physical exam to figure out what the issues are. You know, these birds can't tell us what's wrong. So we have to be very keen observers. And so they're skilled to just doing a really good physical exam to try to find out what's all wrong with the birds. I want to ask a really basic question. When you look at eagles or a full-grown, let's say, red-tailed hawk, how big are they? How heavy are they? What are their wingspans? Well, so I'm (laughs) going to put it back to you. What do you think an adult bald eagle weighs? Wow. I would say maybe 10 pounds. Yeah, that's pretty close. So the, the males are 9 or 10. The females can go up to 12, at least in Minnesota. And, you know, people always say, oh, 40 or 50 pounds. Oh no! Well, our our educators would have to be weightlifters in order to, yeah. <laughs> right, to have a bird like that standing on their glove. No, they're about ten to twelve pounds. They're really a lot of feathers, feathers and and light bones, right? <laughs> so, and their wingspans. I mean, you know, we we have a little wingspan chart up uh, when you come in the Raptor Center, and people always love to see, you know, what species am I? But you know, what? the wingspan for like a red-tailed hawk could be three, three and a half feet, something like Whoa. that. And a bald eagle, of course, it's, you know, going to be even much more than that. What is your role with educating school kids? I, like, do you take an active role in that? Uh, the Raptor Center does. Yes, yeah. we actually, yeah. yes, we, we go out. So we have two, well, anyway, pre-pandemic, we had two options there. We have a group of 25 educational ambassadors, Raptor ambassadors. So these are birds that could not be released to the wild and that we evaluated to make sure that they would be good candidates for permanent captivity. Okay. And they are trained. So they are accustomed to being close to people. They are trained to travel. And so we'll actually take those ambassadors to schools and scout group, senior citizen, you know, facilities, a lot of different places, corporate events. And those birds will help us share the message, right? And how impactful is that? You know, we can stand up there and talk all we want, right? But to have really a live ambassador really hits the messages home. So if, if there are teachers listening or people who are interested in doing this, how would they contact you to, to set that up? Well, they should just look on our website because we have a whole section on our webpage um, that is devoted to what program offerings we currently have and how to find out more information. So the contact information is okay. there. So as we've talked about the Raptor Center and your work, is there... Anything else you'd like to share about the Raptor Center? What makes it so special? Well, I think in part, it's the people. You know, I mean, the birds, of course, are amazing. But we are really a service organization. And part of that service is the rehabilitation work that we do. Yeah. Another part is the outreach that we do. 
I do want to mention that we also do some research, you know, so we want to continue to learn and grow. And so some of the research we do is clinic-based as far as drugs. How is this drug going to affect this type of bird? And because, you know, really we're using a lot of human products or products that are used for dogs and cats, you know, there hasn't been a lot of research on what works in birds. And so we do some, some clinic-based research. But then we also like to look broader. And so what we do are things like we just finished a collaborative project with Hawk Ridge up in Duluth to measure the number of toxins that are in the blood of birds mm-hmm. that are like they're, they tested them up there for those migrating birds. And then they also wanted to look at the level that were in resident birds. And oh. so, you know, what better way than the birds that we get in from our local area to measure the, you know, the amount of toxins that are in their blood and then compare. We're also currently working on a project to help figure out if there is an auditory signal that can be used to help prevent eagle deaths at wind energy farms. So there's been a lot of work. Yeah, pretty intense, huh? Yeah. So there's been a lot of work for visual. You know, what can be put visually at these farms that would kind of deter eagles and other raptors too yeah. away from, from these, these turbine blades, which just wreak havoc, yeah. their high mortality. And so we're like, well, okay, that's one you know, way to potentially go. What about auditory? No one has looked at the auditory yeah. right, system. And so we had to start by just doing basic science, just mapping the auditory range of bald eagles. Okay. So we did that a few years ago and we figured out, you know, what range they hear. And so then we picked a couple of just general sounds within that range and we kind of found which one created the greatest response. Really? So now we're testing that out when we're exercising our birds. If we play these sounds in different quadrants of the field, will it either, you know, distract them so that they fly in a different direction Will it just at least get their attention so that they are aware that those blades are going to be, you know, right in front of them? So it's really exciting to be kind of on the forefront of that, yeah, type of research. Now, can humans hear those sounds or are they such a, you can, okay. Yes. Yep. They're just sounds, you know, like some eagle grunts (laughs) and some alarm calls, you know, just so they're more natural sounds. Some of them anyway. So we're, yeah, we're just kind of in the early stages of trying to figure out which sound may be the best. So and maybe a, no sound will be. Who knows, right? Science. But it's a great, it, it sounds like a promising solution. Well, and I think it's going to end up being a kind of a compilation of auditory and visual together. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but it's exciting just to be, you know, studying, studying research that may help countless number of birds in the wild. Oh, yeah, because we're going to have more wind farms. So if we can do this safely, that would oh, be. Oh, definitely. Wow. What what yeah. a testament to the work you do. Holy cow. Lori, thank you for joining us today and telling us about this incredible Raptor Center and uh, some of the things that you do there. And for all of us who live in Minnesota, we know that the Raptor Center is just yet another Minnesota gem. And uh, it is. And so thank you so much being here. Now, if people want to support or donate to the Raptor Center, where do they go? Oh, the best, the best page is to go to our website. And of course, this week is Give to the Max in Minnesota. Ah, and okay. that really, that is a major, major fundraiser for the Raptor Center. 
So we encourage people to give at any level. You know, every donation helps, whether it's to feed a single bird for a couple of days or, or more. And we actually happen to have a $60,000 match, which means that if people donate $10, it'll be matched $10. So it'll actually be twice as much. Nice. Um, and that, that grant uh, comes from several different people. It comes from the Robert and Susan Wilder, Rachel okay. Holstead, the Acorn Charitable Trust, and the Sarah J. Anderson Fund of the Hugh J. Anderson Foundation. So we're extremely grateful to those people. But another way that people can contribute too is their time. If they want to come and join our, our volunteer corps, we'd be excited to, to have them and to, to talk to them about the different opportunities that they can actually get their, their hands in there too in a, in a more direct wow. way. I think that's exciting. So if people wanted to actually volunteer, there's a, a, a training involved, correct? Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, how exciting. Well, thank you, Lori, for being here today. I, it, oh, it's it was my just... pleasure. You're so welcome. Thank you. And listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. And word of mouth is terrific. So thank you so much for joining us.